folks. This is a fundraising pitch. Uh, you might have noticed that the show's been on hiatus for about the last six months. Okay, why? Well, I've been producing the Korea File ad-free for the last three years. That's 68 episodes. And it takes a lot of time and effort to track down interviews, research, edit, and produce the show. Of course, I gotta work to pay the rent, which doesn't leave a lot of time to focus on the podcast. So I'm wondering, is it possible to turn this into a part-time job? Maybe, but I need your help. Go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and throw me a few dollars a month for the price of a cup of coffee at Tom and Tom's, for the cost of a sandwich at Isaac Toast, you can help turn this podcast into a sustainable project. And patrons get perks. For an ongoing donation of just $4 a month, you'll have access to extra content that you won't find anywhere else online, including bonus interviews and special subscriber-only episodes. If you can afford to contribute a little more every month, $10 donation gets you exclusive VIP access to information about upcoming guests and the opportunity to submit questions for future episodes, a kind of executive producer position. But hey, every dollar helps a lot, and listeners like you can help to sustain this podcast. So if you can contribute, again, go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and donate a few bucks. Thanks. All right. Here's the episode. Broadcasting from Montreal, this is The Korea File, a bi-weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the Korean peninsula and the world. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode. Hailing from the small town streets of Bluffton, Ohio, Joe Smucker left for Korea by freighter in 1956 to help with the country's post-war reconstruction. But how he came to play this role was unusual. At 22, the recent university graduate faced a situation familiar to his generation of American men, submit to the military draft and enlist in the army. As a pacifist, Smucker took a different path. He faced the draft board as a conscientious objector. Smucker was permitted to join the Mennonite Central Committee in Daegu, a relief organization similar to today's Oxfam or Doctors Without Borders, performing relief work and helping refugees in a country still coping with the aftermath of a brutal civil war. This is his story. How old were you when you arrived in South Korea? I was 22. and um, From Bluffton, Ohio? From Bluffton, Ohio. I had just graduated. The draft was still on, so at that time... Uh, if you're in an uh, educational program or institution, you can postpone the draft. Uh, but once you're out, you are subject to the draft. You finished school. So I finished school, and uh, rather than wait to be called up, I uh, indicated my notification that I was ready to serve. But 
uh, only uh, in alternative service. So at that time, they had draft boards set up for each county in the state, and you had to make your case before the draft board of whether or not you were legitimate or not. I had two brothers that went before the draft board, one during the Second World War and the other one uh, soon after. So they already had established a precedent, so by the time I came up, they already had records, so I didn't have any problem. In 1956, you left for Korea. That's um, right. From 56 to 59, uh, you were involved in relief ministry. This is actually relief work. It's not proselytizing and you were uh, located in and around Daegu City. You were associated with the Mennonite Central Committee. Tell me about that organization. That's right. Well, the Mennonite Central Committee uh, formally began in the 1920s. It was organized in order to help uh, Mennonite refugees from uh, Russia get out of the country and get settled here or... uh, Many of them went to Paraguay as well. Prior to that, uh, there had been experience with other organizations. For example, my father in 1919, uh, with a number of people, other young men, went to uh, what is now Syria to uh, work with Armenian refugees flowing out of Turkey. Most of them were women because the men were killed. Previous to the formal organization. Mennonites had volunteered with other organizations uh, to help out in troublesome areas, especially after the First World War. So it's called Relief Ministry, but the work wasn't proselytizing. Um, It wasn't Bible study or things of that nature, correct? That's right. That term ministry came much later. Uh, During that time, it was really relief work. And the first MCC person to do relief work went in the final stages of the war in 1953. The war ended in 53. And he, and then he was joined by another person, uh, attempted to set up a program uh, for emergency relief for refugees uh, flowing down from North Korea. But it wasn't until three years later in 1956 that uh, I went. The unit had already been established and I was sent to direct the uh, emergency relief work. Taegu had uh, a huge population of refugees from North Korea, so MCC focused on the province of Kyungsan, where Taegu is located. By the time I went, we had not only emergency relief, uh, both in the city and in the countryside, but we had started a vocational school for orphan boys. We started a... uh, what we called a widow's project for uh, widowed women to make a living uh, sewing clothes, repairing clothes. We had nurses working in the Presbyterian Hospital, both in Tegu and Pusan. Uh, we had uh, two social workers working in Seoul, um, and uh, then we had uh, a married couple and uh, two other workers at the vocational school uh, for the orphan boys. MCC people acted as teachers, nurses, social workers, relief agents. So is a relief agent a term for someone who does a little bit of everything, or did MCCers arrive in Korea with a specific task? Well, by the time I went, I mean, we were called relief workers. Uh, We had specific tasks. I was sent to direct the uh, material aid. What does that mean? Well, that involved, we supported uh, what were then called melt kitchens in Taegu, uh, in the city, 
uh, and we served the uh, refugee population there with distributions of clothing. Uh, we built uh, uh, small temporary houses, mud walls. The roofs were made of flattened tin cans uh, that were joined together. Um, that was in the city. Then, periodically, mostly in the spring, sometimes in the wintertime, we would truck supplies out to the rural areas because so many dikes had been destroyed during the war, and the farmers had a really rough time. And during the Second War, the Japanese had pretty well denuded the hills of all timber and everything else. Uh, during the Second World War, the Japanese were using the timber for their own war effort Exactly. Abroad. Yeah, yeah. there was very little love lost between the Koreans and the Japanese when I was there. You're talking about social welfare and a lot of different, uh, a lot of different means of supplying it. Why was Daegu uh, such a hub for refugees? Well, despite the, the Pusan perimeter, I mean, the, the North Koreans pushed way down south. Despite that push, Taegu was not badly destroyed itself. Um, it, was, it was pretty well preserved. In fact, our unit lived in a, a, what was formerly a Japanese house compound. It was a, a kind of an ideal place for refugees to congregate. There was also uh, a huge Presbyterian mission there uh, that focused on medical care. They had a large hospital, etc. So my guess is that attracted a lot of refugees. Jurisdiction was only within the province. Did you get the impression that the central government in Seoul at that point in 1956 was able to be directing refugees? Were they an active player? At that time I didn't really know. I mean uh, at that time uh, E. Sigmund was president. He, uh, he was a bit of a, a dictator as were subsequent uh, government rulers. At that time things were so chaotic still, even three years after the war I just didn't pay much attention to the political issues uh, that were going on. How did the MCC gain access to being a relief group? Was the American military who basically were running the show in Korea at that time, were they the ones who had ultimate oversight on who to let in? Were they accepting help from all kinds of religious groups? or even secular groups? Did you get a, an impression of the relationship between the American military and relief groups? Well, I think the, mili the military uh, encouraged them. Uh, in fact, there was a military base in Daegu. They often offered us transportation uh, to Halsta. Some of them would attend our um, Sunday morning services, and some would, uh, if they had free time, help us as well. There was a kind of... Uh, Cooperation. Yeah, cooperation between the two. And we, uh, we often went to their Sunday services uh, run by their chaplain, too. They knew who we were. We knew who they were. They were aware that the Mennonites were conscientious objectors? That's right, yeah. How did that affect yeah. the relationship? We never talked about it. But overall, we didn't have that much interaction. It was only in some emergencies when we lacked. Uh, we had one big truck, and if we needed more, well, uh, sometimes they would help. You took a boat from Yokohama to Busan. Yeah. Well, and then how did you get to Japan? By boat as well? It was the same freighter. The MCC put, put us on a freighter. It took us uh, about 13 days to get to Japan. And then we unloaded part of the cargo there. And then from uh, Japan, we went to uh, Pusan. What, was, what were those 13 days on the boat like when you're thinking about uh, 
arriving in a part of the world that you'd never been in and, yeah. maybe, and maybe didn't know a lot about. Yeah. What was going through your mind? Well, first I thought, oh, this would be a great adventure on the boat, but after a while it gets very boring. The boat carried 12 passengers. Uh, when I'd get bored, I found myself going down to the cruise quarters. Uh, There's another guy about my age working there for a summer. The crew all had interesting stories. But they would always save the scariest stories about their experience in Korea. I guess, I don't know, maybe to impress me or something. Were, they, were uh, any of them formerly soldiers? No, they weren't. But they had, they had uh, been to Korea working on freighters before. And they would give me these terrible stories about what life is like in Pusan Harbor. And they used to, you know, warn me of the slicky boys. They were called slicky boys at that time. That's now a bit of a racist term, I think. Yes, yeah. yes, it really was. But, I mean, they had me nervous enough so that uh, when I got off the ship, I noticed that none of the crew got off. Uh, but they yelled at me as I got on the dock to, you know, good luck. And you know. So you take the boat across the Pacific. You stop off in Yokohama for some hours and then uh, don't get off the boat. You arrive at Busan. You disembark. Is there a truck waiting for you? Well, that's an interesting story. There was supposed to be someone there from our unit to meet me. <coughs> he wasn't there. And, of course, I didn't, I didn't know what to were do. Were you the only MCC or traveling at that time? Yeah. Oh, yeah. you were alone. Yeah. Okay. I was the only one traveling. So I got off the boat. Nobody was there. Everybody else disappeared. You don't speak Korean. And I didn't speak Korean at that time. So I didn't know what to do. So I thought, well, the best thing to do is just stay in the customs house. One of the passengers who was a Presbyterian missionary woman, a doctor, came back because she had left something there. And she says, are you still here? I said, yeah. She says, you can't stay here. She says, it's, it's not safe and they're going to close soon, so you better come with me. So I did and they put me up for the night. Later that evening, the person from Tegu who was supposed to meet me showed up and uh, he apologized profusely because he had got involved trying to track down some tires for the jeep and didn't realize the boat had docked. And uh, I mean, three, so we just missed it. Uh, three years after the war ended, Korea is a chaotic place. I it imagine. was. So it was. getting off the boat, was it just overwhelming? Or what did you see? What do you remember from, from that, except for feeling a little confused and abandoned yeah. in the Busan port? Yeah. Well, at, at the time, I really didn't quite know what to do, so I just sat in the customs house, and I just uh, assumed that eventually somebody would show up. Uh, we didn't have any phones or anything, I didn't know who to contact. So how about the memory of uh, you, you finally get in the truck and you head north? What were you feeling? What did you see? What was it like? Well, I thought it was a great adventure. It felt actually. like an adventure still. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I was pretty excited. I was not at all depressed. I was uh, very excited. And, uh, and the trip itself by Jeep, uh, mostly over, you know, dirt roads or ruined roads or fording rivers to get up there is pretty exciting at, at the time. Today, Daegu is a bustling metropolis of more than two and a half million people. It's the fourth largest city in South Korea. But its role in Korea's war, Korea's civil war, was a particularly active one in terms of being on the front lines of the fighting, especially in the first maybe five or six months. Uh, in the summer of 1950, the UN forces established a perimeter around the port uh, city of Busan, where you uh, boated in. 
It was 230 kilometers long, roughly. It stretched from the Korea Strait to the Sea of Japan, west and north of Busan. And uh, west of the perimeter was roughly outlined by the Nakdong River, where it curved at the city of Daegu. This border became the front line for the six-week-long battle of the Busan perimeter in August and September of 1950. In this battle, 140,000 UN troops, South Korean, American, and British primarily, faced off in a prolonged battle with the North Korean army, which numbered around 100,000. The invasion of Incheon by sea, at that time behind North Korean lines, ended the siege uh, at Busan. By the time you arrived, it had been basically free of fighting for five years. Three years. years. Mm -hmm. Uh, The war had been over for three years, but the fighting hadn't really pushed down there in the last couple years of the war. That's right. Um, But refugees and poverty, as well as the intense emotional trauma of the people, must have been uh, overwhelming. What was it like when you arrived in Daegu after you began to just get established with the other MCCers? What, what, What was it like in the first few months? doing the work? Well, in the city, uh, it was just flooded with uh, people living on the streets. You would see uh, women in the mornings washing their clothes in the river. Uh, uh, People were scavenging for food and whatever they could find. There were uh, open markets where people could buy things, a lot of which were stolen from the U.S. Army or other Western agencies. In fact, we often went to the areas to see if our goods got sold uh, when we distributed clothes and things. So it was kind of a, it was an area just teeming with refugees. The University of Kyungbuk was also there. Very uh, impressive to see that students often were helping out. And when I arrived in the summer, we, there was a, a student work camp going on, uh, building um, uh, housing along the river. It was temporary housing. Uh, so the first thing I did when I got there was to join that group. Then we continued with the program of having milk kitchens throughout the city for uh, young children and mothers. And that milk, milk came in powdered form from the U.S. government. It was surplus. And so we got surplus milk, but also surplus rice. Uh, that was shipped to us, and we had ongoing regular distributions in the city uh, for the refugees living there. They didn't much like the rice because it wasn't sticky like the (laughs) Korean rice, but they ate it anyway. Mm -hmm. Taegu itself was just kind of teeming with people moving in and out and trying to make it. At that time, I always think of civil society being kind of broken, Um, not a strong central government, a lot of chaos and confusion in Seoul at that time, too. Yeah. Uh, Isingman was a strong man, but his strength maybe was affected by his uh, obsession with the war that had never ended. Yeah. Um, so what was it like in terms of a functioning civil society, a fire force, police, hospitals, schools? What did you observe? In many, in many ways, I, I wasn't really aware of, of sort of the, the breakdown because everything was uh, pretty chaotic. Mm-hmm. And uh, the police weren't that evident, for example. Uh, There were checkpoints, army checkpoints. The army was pretty much in command of things. But at that time, I wasn't really aware of, you know, sort of the structure of civil society. It, It just seemed to me that it was a society in chaos. 
and that we were constantly uh, on the move. We were constantly getting requests for help. We'd get in the rainy season after that ended, there would be disasters in the country area because there were no trees. The dams for the rice paddies would wash away. Uh, so there was emergencies out there during the winter. People were freezing cold. So it, it was just constant motion and demands and then sorting out, well, which are the legitimate demands or which are, and which ones are coming from the frack marketeers and we've got to go out and check uh, to see who's asking for this and are they legitimate and so it was just constant movement. With, with, with relief work, I imagine that it is non-stop and that it's not like a vacation, where, well, obviously it's not a vacation, but you don't really get to have time for yourself or Basically, you are there to help, and that's yeah. that's the exclusive yeah. reason that you're there. Yeah, was it nonstop for three years? It seemed that way, but at that age, it was it was exciting too. In the relief work, there were three of us, single guys, uh, and sometimes four of us, uh, and then there were uh, a couple nurses working in the hospital, and then out of Kyungsan, we had the, the vocational school got started for orphan boys. So we dealt primarily with orphanages. A lot of orphanages were set up. And we dealt with rural areas, farmers, and we dealt with the uh, refugees in the city. So what kind of relationship did the MCC Relief Program have with the Korean people? Uh, so there's connections with the American military that allows you to get a ride or uh, even ex have church services with each other. But besides the helping of the Korean people, yeah, what was the relationship like? Well, we had we had quite a good relationship, actually. We had developed a good relationship with uh, the university, Kenguk University. Uh, I have two lifelong friends who were students at the time and served as interpreters. One now lives in Michigan. Uh, he was sponsored by my family to come over. And he married an American. And the other friend eventually moved to Australia. But we've kept in contact by email all these years. That's The Korea File for this week. You can find new episodes of The Korea File on iTunes and Stitcher and as a featured contributor at koreafm.net, koreabridge.net, and Anglo Info Seoul. Find them and like them on Facebook. You can find The Korea File there too and on Twitter at The Korea File with daily links and current news about the peninsula. And please rate us on iTunes. Each review helps new listeners discover the show. Music on this episode is Kim Jong-ho and his live performance of Ida Morul Sonia. On the next episode of The Korea File in a month's time, join me for part two of my conversation with Joe Smucker. Until then, thanks for listening. From Montreal, I'm Andre Goulet. Yeah. <laughs>